There was a time when lonely men would wander through this land, ruling aimlessly along. So many times I've heard of their sad stories. Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode, I look at about 100 pages of the writings of great Americans while giving my commentary, some historical perspective, and my brief reviews. So in this episode, we'll be looking at Jack London's nonfiction memoir, uh, The Road. Um, it's not a memoir. This book is not a memoir of Jack London's entire life. It's a memoir really of about one year of his life. Uh, it's set mostly in 1894 when Jack London was living as a hobo. It was published in 1907, so it's about 13 years later, after he had already become quite a notable writer. And this book in part was a response to how his biography has been interpreted by contemporaries, particularly in the popular press. As it was becoming more famous, people were attracted to his very notorious lifestyle and the experiences he had as a young man. And these were fairly well known. And I talk about them in the very first episode of this series on Jack London when I started People of the Abyss. So you can go back and look at that. But, you know, not only was a ho- he was a hobo for a while, he, um, he worked for the Coastal Patrol. He was a a sealer for a while on a on a ship. He was in the Klondike, although that took place after his time as a hobo. He was an oyster pirate, essentially stealing oysters from from traps. What else did he do? Um, he set pins in a in a in a bowling alley one time. So he had a lot of very unique experiences. Even at the time, people were taking notice of of that, and you know there was kind of speculation on why he decided to be a hobo and he addresses that but he also talks just broadly about the experiences of living on the road the people he met it's in many ways a a very light book it it's not as heavy and as serious as the people of the abyss even though some of the things described in the book are just as horrible and just as brutal and certainly some of the systemic things on the backdrop of the road are pretty horrible like the depression of of 1893-1894, for instance. However, you know, these are kind of not the focus. The focus is on the day-to-day life, the solidarities, the experiences of hobos, um, and the kind of thing, the things they face. So it's it's not so much a guide as, I, as much as, you know, to live a hobo life, but it was a way of making this lifestyle known to mainstream, mainstream readers um, who were perhaps already well aware of Jack London's work. So a few notable events took place to Jack London during this year he was living on the roads. Uh, the two probably biggest ones were he took part in Cuxy's army, uh, also known as Kelly's army. Well, Kelly's army was like the western half or part of Cuxy's army. And I'll say a little bit more about this when we get to the chapter about this. But Cuxy's army was essentially an unemployed workers movement that developed in 1894, one of the most the first really well-developed unemployed workers movement. And it really set the foundation for the unemployed workers movements that would emerge in the Great Depression years and where they'd be a really powerful political force. But in uh, Coxie's army really foreshadows all other things like Bonus Army and a lot of the social movements of the, of the Great Depression era. Um, and it 
and we we'll, we can talk a little bit about it later on when I get to this part of the book. But it's this this depression was key in transforming how American working class people saw economic ups and downs. I'll just put it at that, and I'll come back to that issue. Another thing that happened to him was he was arrested for vagrancy at one point and served 30 years in the Erie County Penitentiary, and that is documented here, both his arrest and his, his quote-unquote trial. It was, it was barely a trial, but uh, and then his time in jail. These are things that, especially the vagrancy charge, are things that happen to hobos all the time. It was really a part of their life, and not even just for hobos. People could get arrested for vagrancy for all sorts of reasons. Um, and this is one of the arguments given by some historians for, you know, kind of that the end of slavery was kind of a soft end of slavery because the 13th Amendment allowed people to be put to work for punishment for crimes. And when you had cr so many crimes on the books, people could just basically be rounded up at will, you know, charged with vagrancy, given 30 days or more, then sent to work. That essentially was a form of, of continuation of, of slavery. So, um, yeah, so as I said, Jack, uh, Jack London published The Road in, in 1907. I can't imagine he spent too much time writing it, considering how much um, he wrote in his relatively short life as, as a writer. But he does address his motivations a little bit in, I think it's chapter 7, I want to say. Uh, but here's what he says about this. And he's really addressing the fact that people misinterpret how he why he became a hobo. Quote, every once in a while in newspapers, magazines, and biographical dictionaries, I run upon sketches of my life wherein, delicately phrased, I learned that it was in order to study sociology that I became a tramp. This is very nice and thoughtful, the biographies, but it is inaccurate. I became a tramp, well, because of the life that was in me, of a wanderlust in my blood that would not rest. Sociology was merely incidental. It came afterwards in the same manner that a wet skin follows a duckling. I went on the road because I couldn't keep away from it, because I hadn't the price of rail railroad fare in my jeans, because I was so made that I couldn't work all my life on one same shift, because, well, just because it was easier than not to, end quote. Uh, and then he goes in to talk about how he gets into his career um, as, as a hobo. So it wasn't, you know, like Richard Henry Dana becoming a sailor to basically know what it's like to be a sailor. Richard Henry Dana was from a rich family. I think he was attending Harvard at the time. And he went to the sea with the intention of writing about it. Um, and I'm certainly, if this podcast keeps up, I'll get to Richard Henry Dana eventually. There's a really wonderful volume of his works uh, published by the Library of America. Um, or there's that rel relatively more, much more recent book than, than those, uh, Nickels and Dimes, in which you had an academic who, you know, tries to pretend to be the working poor for a while, you know, working for minimum wage. Of course, they never really fully become that. Um, in a way, I, I'm reminded in this description more of how Melville's character, um, Ishmael, in Moby Dick, describes his kind of desire just to go at sea. That's not really... It wasn't so much he was pushed into it, but there was just something in him that drove him there. I think the way it's described in Melville's work is that there was kind of a November in his soul. And that's the kind of feel I get from here. So the book consists of, of nine chapters. Uh, it's around 100 pages in modern print. I think the original version was 200 pages. But if you ever read the little books from 100 years ago, you know they 
they were kind of they're not as many pages per not as many words per page as are common now in in books so um it was about 200 pages then but yeah you can it's about 100 pages now it's you know it, it's a it's a one sitting read really if you just sit down and read it um make a sandwich perhaps but you can you can do it in one sitting about four hours it took me the nine chapters deal with different aspects of hobo life mostly set during the economic crisis of 1893 to which lasted till 1894 and into 1895 this was the work economic depression in american history up to that time and it was the first major collapse of capitalism since in the united states since america became industrial it was a world crisis and that's it had a lot in common with with the Great Depression of the 1930s. Um, but it was certainly the worst at the time. It was the first to put a significant percentage of the American working class into unemployment and homelessness. And it was for the first time that maybe Americans started to think that the problem is not me. It's not that I'm lazy. It's not the fault of my failings or my inabilities, that there's really something wrong with the system, right? That there's something failure in the system. Now, certainly socialists like Jack London believed there was something wrong with the system. He writes a whole book about this called The Iron Heel, which is, although it's presented to us a bit like science fiction or dystopia, it's essentially a, you know, a 200 page polemic on, on turn of the century, turn of the 20th century capitalism in America. And it's amazing how much he gets right and how much he predicts in that, that book. But we'll get to that in the next episode. So what I'm going to do here is just skim through the nine chapters with you and highlight what I think are its major themes. But in general, I believe London is making an argument about the distinctive culture and values of the hobos and the general necessity of hobos for American life. As in The People of the Abyss, Jet London is interested in reflecting on the paradox of thrift, although he never addresses it and calls it by its name. In The People of the Abyss, he basically criticizes the, the culture of thrift and the culture of kind of hard work because he says, you know, if you have two workers and they're both trying to be more thrifty than the other and harder working, both of their lives are going to be degraded in, in that competition, right? The goal should be greater prosperity and shared prosperity for all people, kind of a, this lifting of all boats. But thriftiness, this conservatism, this kind of lift yourself by your bootstraps, you know, be willing to work for less, be willing to work for minimum wage to pay for college. That kind of attitude is going to pull us all down into into greater and greater levels of poverty. It's kind of a race to the bottom instead of, you know, a fight for, for rising standards for everyone. Um, and of course, we understand this in an economic, you know, from economic theory as the paradox of thrift. You know, what's good for an individual worker, such as saving money, right, being thrifty, or saving more of your paycheck for the future, that's good for you that's bad for the economy as a whole, right? And this ultimately is the reason why inequality is bad for macroeconomies, right? Because if you, know, if you have a, a situation where the wealth is being hoarded by the, the 1%, to use Occupy Wall Street language, to be you know, held onto by the 1%, it's not being spent. More and more of it's being saved. Right? I think in the Iron Heel, Jack London gives the example of you know, a shoe factory that takes off hundred dollars of leather produces two hundred dollars worth of shoes and you so it's a hundred dollars of value created through that process you give half of it to the workers half to the capital right and the workers can only buy fifty dollars worth of shoes right there's another who's going to buy the other hundred and fifty dollars worth of shoes right um or the other fifty dollars of value i suppose 
who's going to buy it? If the capitalist class doesn't buy it or reinvest it in their factories and it just gets sat on, that's going to be the, 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 the root cause of a major economic crisis if aggregated across the whole economy. So in now London's argument here in the road is a little bit not somewhat macroeconomic. He's just saying that the vice of hoboism is promoting good Americanism. Now, as contradictory as that sounds, he thinks it's true and he makes a really brief argument for that. But I, I think running throughout this is his argument that hoboism is part of American life and hoboism is an essential part of American life. And it's part of America's character and it's part of its goodness, actually, both in how people deal with hobos, how will hobos interact with one another. And as bad as hobo life can be and as nasty as hobos might be from time to time to one another, you know, in their own communities, it's not nearly as bad as the economic system as a whole is. Um, so it's, it's a reflection of, of American life in various ways. All right. Chapter one, Confession. So it, the book starts out really brilliant, actually. It starts out with this apology, this confession. And the confession is basically that he lied to a, a young woman and he feels bad about lying. Well, he doesn't really feel that bad, but he, he, he expresses regret for lying to her. But he explains that this is the requirement of life as a hobo, is to be constant liars and storytellers. This chapter uh, is mostly about the requirements that hobos be storytellers in order to survive. Uh, it, especially in order to gain the sympathy of, sympathy of those they rely on. They must constantly lie to do this. London frames this as a confession to a woman he once lied to, but he's done the same to many others, right? But we should say perhaps millions because he did become a writer and writers are essentially liars. At least those that write fiction. The reason this line was so important is because few looked at hobos as anything else but nuisances unless they were able to bridge a connection with them. So by lying, you were able to create a foundation by which they'd have some sympathy and empathy for you, right? So America's like kind of really too clannish, I guess, and Americans are too individualist. They don't really always feel connections to the people who are poorer. But if you can lay some foundation for that, you can say like, oh, we, you know, I was a sailor like you or... You know, my mom died too, or some kind of foundation for that solidarity, then American kind of group making will form. And I'm thinking here of Tocqueville. Tocqueville talked about how Americans like to make groups and societies. Anyways, here's what he says about it. Give me a second. Should have should have bookmarked these pages for you. I was a quote, I was an English apprentice, I said. And they said to me that I didn't talk like an English boy. It was up to me to create one the instant. I had been born and reared in the United States. On the death of my parents, I had been sent to England to my grandparents. It was they who apprenticed me on the Glenmore. I hope the captain of the Glenmore will forgive me, for I gave him a character that night in the Winnipeg police station. Such cruelty, such brutality, such diabolical ingenuity of torture. It explained why I deserted the Glenmore at Montreal. But why was I in the middle of Canada going west when my grandparents lived in England? Promptly, I created a married sister that lived in California. She would take care of me. I developed at length her loving nature, but they were not done with me, those hard-headed policemen. I had joined the Glenmore in England in the two years that I have elapsed before my desertion at Montreal. What had the Glenmore done and where had she been? 
I thereat took those land letters around the world with me. Buffeted by pounding seas and stung with flying spray, they fought the typhoon with me off the coast of Japan. They loaded and unloaded cargo with me in all the ports of the seven seas. I took them to India and Rangoon and China and had them hammer ice with me around the horn and at last come to moorings at Montreal, end quote. Now, of course, at this point in his life, London didn't do any of that stuff, right? So he is basically being a fiction writer. And he points out in this chapter that it's only by being a good liar on the road that he developed the necessary tools that allow him to become a, a writer of fiction, a storyteller, a, a professional liar, if you will. Chapter two, holding her down. In this chapter, we learn the techniques that London and other hobos used to stay on passenger rail cars when the crew was making efforts to remove them. It's essentially the basic and most essential skill of the hobo, which is why London puts it early on in his story. He sees it as basically the foundational skill that all hobos must learn. Quote, barring accidents, a good hobo with youth and agility can hold a train down despite all the efforts of the train crew to ditch him. Given, of course, nighttime is an essential condition. When such a hobo under such conditions makes up his mind that he's going to hold her down, either he does hold her down or chance trips him up. There is no legitimate way short of murder whereby the train crew can ditch him. The train crews have not stopped short of murder is a current belief in the tramp world. Not having had that particular experience on my tramp days, I cannot vo uh, vouch for it personally. All right, so a couple of things here. One is that this is at least another perception of the hobos, a life or death struggle, but it's something so essential to their life. If you can't stay on the trains, you can't move to where you need to go, and you know, you, your livelihood as a migrant worker, which is what hobos typically are, is really at risk. His point here, well, the chapter just describes one effort made by London to stay in a train. It's successful, and he shows how he learned to do this and how he was able to adapt. His point seems to be that the hobos are infinitely adaptable. They're very creative when it comes to holding on to this these basic tools. It seems that a goal of the hobos was to become almost hidden on the trains. Right? And the way that maybe certain insects might be hiding in your home, they're a central part of the domestic ecosystem of your home. But you don't know they're there, right? Maybe you'll see one or two at night coming out like a spider or something. But they're there and they're living there and they're part of that existence. And perhaps your world would be very different without them. You know, you can think of any kind of rodent or pest that might dwell inside a house. This is a metaphor for hobos actually across the entire nation. They are hidden. They work to stay hidden. They do jobs that are essential to be done. They provide services. They're a part of the ecosystem of the nation, according to uh, London, as much as they're part of the ecosystem of the passenger rail trains. So that's what I think is going on in this chapter two, holding her down. Next, we have pictures. Now, pictures is the point he makes here. The metaphor of pictures is that the life on the road is like a picture book where you're flipping through and a lot of different things happen to you and they come and go. Nothing's really permanent. It's more like the flipping of pages in a picture book. And there's this great diversity of life. But he also talks about the unfortunate brutality that it takes place here. All right? The solidarity of life among the hobos is also emphasized, though, and that these are two sides of the same coin. Right? Part of this is that there's a lot of silence or there's almost a umerta kind of ethos about the violence one might run into within hobo communities and particularly the more clannish or hierarchically organized hobo groups, right? That actually, he talks about how they sometimes actually have chiefs almost. 
Sorry. All right. The, the passage I'm looking for in this chapter is where he kind of talks about these, these almost as settlements with their own dynamics in them. He says, um, I took in the scene and I knew them for what they were, American gypsies. In the open space that extended back upon the trees at the edge of the bank were several nondescript wagons. Ragged, half-naked children swarmed over the camp, though I noticed that they took care not to come near and bother the menfolk. Several lean, unbeautiful, and toil-degraded women were pottering about with camp chores. And one I noticed who sat by herself in the seat of her way of one of the wagons. Her head dropped forward, her knees down to her chin, and claspedly limp, clasped limply by her arms. She did not look happy. She looked as if she did not care for anything. In this I was wrong, for later I was to learn that there was something for which she did care. End quote. And that's going to be an important point later on in this chapter. What happens here is he basically observes in this camp a, a chief, basically kind of a, a leader of this community, beating up two young boys, two young men. The age is certainly sp specified here, but beating them up for breaking some kind of rule. Jacqueline doesn't, doesn't really know what the rule is. And this woman tries to interfere in the beating, and she ends up getting beaten herself. And there's a two or three page description that's quite horrific and detailed and hard to read. Um, and London describes this all in detail he's, he's honest about it here but at the time he said he had to just be silent about it it really wasn't his place and that was part of kind of the ethos of of the camp in fact he kind of goes out of his way to perhaps justify this violence by contrasting it to the overall horrors of, horrors of capitalism he says worse pages of life than what i've described and and Notice he takes a lot of time describing the horror of beating this woman experiences. But he says, worse pages of life than what I've described? Read the reports on child labor in the United States, east, west, north, and south. It doesn't matter where. And know that all of us, profit mongers that we are, are typesetters and printers of the worst pages of life than the mere page of a wife beating on the Susquehanna. Um, and that's, that's how he kind of not really apologizes for this he, he does acknowledge it's what it is but to, to see it you know that the run-of-the-mill capitalist is much more violent than the, this wife beater if you add up the sufferings that person may cause and here again is is a part of london's point that the hobos are america writ small right they're they're america on the move they have all of its good and it's bad combined in it in in and they carry it around so that that's the chapter pictures um, and then in chapters four and five we get uh, an account of his arrest for vagrancy his trial and his imprisonment in the erie county penitentiary and this is these two chapters are really about how the institutions of america treat the hobos with indifference and cruelty most hobos, it, it's revealed here, feel a connection to American history and the American experience. They don't see themselves as outside of that, as fully betrayed by that. They believe they have certain rights. They have, that might come from their heritage or tradition. Now, if people have been on the road longer, maybe are more cynical and realistic about it. But some of the people who are new on the road, and he points to one person who was older and more recently become a hobo, who really wanted to stand up for his, his beliefs. It doesn't really get them very far, as we'll see. And this is what Jack London says about it. He's feeling it too. He's still a young man, you know, from from the West Coast, 
perhaps hasn't had the, the felt the full weight of the criminal justice system on him yet. Quote, but my American blood was up. Behind me were the many generations of my American ancestry. One of the kinds of liberty these ancestors of mine had fought and died for was the right of trial by jury. This was my heritage, stained sacred by their blood, and it devolved upon me to stand up for it. All right, I threatened to myself, threatened to myself, just wait till he gets to me. So what's happening at this point is these hobos are brought one after another to the judge, and the judge just uh, asks the bailiff what the charge is. The bailiff says vagrancy, and the judge says 30 days, right? And there's no trial. And, you know, some people who aren't used to this are getting angry. They think they have a right to a jury trial. Um, in fact, they don't. Now, I don't know the legal le legalities behind this. Jack London doesn't really give them to us. I'm sure a legal historian could go into it and, and, and explain why this was possible. Maybe it was the, the short time of the sentence, right, that allowed them to avoid this. Anyways, Jack London, for all is getting puffed up about this, is just one more person who gets, you know, 30 days without an opportunity to speak up for himself. One man does, and this is this older man who kind of hasn't been on the road that long. And for spe speaking up, he gets 60 days instead of 30 days. Over the course of their treatment by the criminal justice system, the anger they feel changes into ennui and then acceptance. And London takes a few pages to talk about this transformation. And here's how he concludes this. He says, As the days went by, I began to grow more convinced. I saw with my eyes that in the prison, things unbelievable and monstrous. And the more convinced I became, the profounder grew my respect in me for the sleuthhounds of the law and the whole institution of criminal justice. My indignation ebbed away, and into me rushed the tides of fear. I saw at last clear-eyed what I was up against. I grew meek and lowly. Each day I resolved more emphatically to make no rumpus when I got out. All I asked when I got out was a chance to fade away from the landscape, and that was just what I did when I was released. I kept my tongue between my teeth, walked softly, and sneaked for Pennsylvania in wiser, a wiser and humbler man. So that's that's the end of chapter four. So chapter five is really connected to this, and you would read these really together. This is about his 30 days in the Erie County Penitentiary, which he served. This is all based on his real experiences. Now, in many ways, life here in the jail seems to replicate what he's saying about the life of hobos in general, in that it's creative, it has its own rules and logic, it has its own solidarities that the members must follow, it's got its own kind of internal rules. One memorable aspect of life in the pen was its grapevine telegraph, right? And, and how there's kind of almost a credit economy where favors are paid back, right? Or if you don't do favors, people, you suffer and you can't you know, get anything back. So favors become kind of a form of currency within the penitentiary. He also talks about how there was very, there's a lot of excitement and diversity in prison life, that it's not all bleak. And when I read this, I, you know, I've never been in prison. I've never even really been, been in jail, really. Um, not even like a drunk tank overnight kind of situation. So I don't know what it's like. And I'm sure there, so much of what he says is still true about prisons, but, you know, just I guess this is what I'm getting from pop culture mostly. It just doesn't seem very diverse and exciting. It seems very bland and, and tedious. Um, but um, who knows? This is what he says about it, though. This is at least what perhaps was true in, in the 19th century. Life was not monotonous in the pen. Every day something was happening. Men were having fits, going crazy, fighting, or the whole men were getting drunk. Rover Jack, one of the ordinary hall men, was our star 
Oread, he was a true provitz, and blowed in the glass stiff, and as such received all kinds of latitude from the men hall and authority. Pittsburgh Joe, who was a second hall man, used to join Rover Jack in his jags, and it was a saying of the pair that the Erie County Pen was the only place where a man could get slopped and not get arrested. I never knew, but I was told that bromide of potassium gained in devious ways from the dispensary was the dope they used. But I do know, whatever their dope was, that they got it good and drunk on occasions. Um, so we also see here the the ability of these people in jail to smuggle in and, and, and find ways to, to get high. Now, however, we also see in here that no quarter is given to resistance, that it's really a, what Philip K. Dick, the science fiction writer, would call the black iron prison in a lot of ways. There's latitude, but if you ever stand up for your rights or you try to actually oppose the system in a fundamental way, you're going to get smacked around. And he tells the story of a black man who attempts to stand for his rights. And it's a short paragraph, but he basically says, you know, he calls him a handsome young mulatto, end quote. And he basically said something to the guards about his rights, and he's just, in, you know, almost immediately tossed down the steps. You know, and did not, it seems pretty painful, the way it's described here. So, I guess that's it. That's it for chapter five. That's the jail. Um, or that's all I want to say about it. Um, chapter six, hobos that pass in the night. So this this chapter is mostly about the different types of hobos that one might meet on the roads and the interactions between these hobos. Um, they're sometimes described really by their, their place of birth. Um, quote, a favorite device of hobos is to base their monikas on the localities from which they hail as... New York Tommy, Pacific Slim, Buffalo Smithy, Canton Tim, Pittsburgh Jack, Syracuse Shine, Troy Mickey, K.L. Bill, and Connecticut Jimmy. Then there was Slim Jim from Vinegar Hill, who never worked and never will. A Shine is always a Negro, so-called possibly from the highlights of his continents. Texas Shine or Toledo Shine convey both race and nativity. Among those that incorporated the race, I recollect the following. Frisco Shinny, New York Irish, Michigan French, English Jack, Cockney Kid, and Milwaukee Dutch. Others seem to take their monikas from their color scheme stomped in them at birth, such as Chai Whitey, New Jersey Red, Boston Blackie, Seattle Brownie, and Yellow Dick, and Yellow Belly. The last a Creole from Mississippi, who I suspected had his monica thrust upon him. And it goes on. It's actually a couple pages where he talks about all these different names of the hobos. We learn that people going in the same direction will hear of each other because uh, the people going the other direction will will tell stories of so-and-so. You know, do, do you know this guy? I just ran into him yesterday. And sometimes one will pass the other or they'll pass each other. Sometimes they'll travel together, share resources, share information, or just share companionship and friendship. And much of this chapter deals with London's travels with a man identified as Swede. Um, again, identifying someone based on kind of their native place. And we see really how their misery and isolation was shared and therefore made more palatable. And in the final scene of this chapter, they both vow not to be hobos anymore. They both vow to never do it again. Um, now, we don't know if they keep their vows. I guess Jack London stopped being a hobo at one point, but we don't know about Sweet. Um, and these people come into your life and they leave their life but they they leave some kind of memory on them and you know i've met a lot of people and i can't say i could like list them and all their nicknames and things um you know maybe like people from my high school 
Um, but, you know, it seems that these are really meaningful relationships. They mean something for London, and, they, and he remembers them in very fond ways. So that's, again, part of the broader solidarity that people here experience um, on the road. Chapter 7 is called Road Kids and Gay, and, and Gay Cats. This chapter is, see, it's not chronological. This chapter is really about how London became a hobo, right? A different writer may have put this chapter first um, because it's really about the transition. He goes from being an oyster pirate, and he talks a little bit about that experience, but then how he became a hobo, including his apprenticeship under someone named Bob. And he gives examples of an important lesson he gets from Bob of, of how to get cheap hats from the Chinese, right? He loses a hat or he needs a hat for winter. And Bob's like, no, this is where you go to get a hat. And then it's the Chinese. Um, the title of this chapter is called Road Kids and Gay Cats. And we learn what these people are. So road kids are usually younger hobos. They are the ones who cause the most trouble if they're in groups. Now, the other group, the gay cats, 285, are the tenderfoots, the people who aren't experienced, the people who have just become hobos. And there's a, presumably a lot of these in 1894 because of the Depression, where right? a lot of people were pushed into homelessness. I think unemployment rates got up to 25% during that Depression, although I have to look up um, in a history book. But um, the point of this chapter is that there's a hierarchy and social order in the road. And like any other profession, it's one you grow into and one you have to accept and you're trained into. It has its own dangers, but it also has its own internal politics that have to be understood and followed. But it's, again, it's, it's replicating a, an aspect of American life that people would have known, like learning a job or, or, or learning how it works in a new neighborhood or a new community. That's the thing that's happening to the hobos. So London always wants to remind his readers that that these people are essentially like everyone else. They're not that different. They're not, you know, they're doing the same kind of things that everyone else does. They're just doing so in a very different social context and economic context and with very different pressures. Chapter eight is called 2000 Stiffs. And this chapter is mostly about Kelly's army, which was the Western branch of Coxey's army. Coxey's army is one of the more interesting social movements of the later 19th century. Um, it's it was the first major organization of unemployed workers. Of course, you had labor unions. You had the IWW and you had the Knights of Labor. This Coxey's army came out of the Depression and it was made mostly of unemployed workers. And as we learned from this chapter, made, you know, a lot of hobos were a part of this. And here's what Wikipedia says about Coxey's army, if, if you forgot your U.S. history. The purpose of the march was to protest the unemployment caused by the panic of 19, 1893 and to lobby for the government to create jobs which would involve building roads and other public works improvements with workers paid in paper currency which would expand the currency in circulation consistent with populist ideology. The march originated with 100 men in Massillon, Ohio, passing through Pittsburgh's Bex Rokes and Homestead, Pennsylvania. The Army's western section received the nickname Kelly's Army after California leader General, quote, General Charles T. Kelly. Although larger in its beginning, Kelly's army lost its members on its long journey. Few made it past the Ohio River. Various groups from along the country gathered to join the march, and its numbers had grown to 500, with more on their way from further west until it reached Washington on April 30, 1894. The 260-acre Chev farm site at current day Colmer Manor, Maryland, was used by the 6,000 establishment as a campsite. Coxey and other leaders of the movement were arrested the next day for walking on the grass of the United States Capitol. Interest in the march and protests rapidly dwindled. Okay, so that's what happened. It's 
what's significant about this is even though they didn't achieve anything, they lay a foundation. Uh, one is this idea of the March on Washington, used, of course, by civil rights groups. Uh, the March on Washington movement of 1941, which was about civil rights and fair employment practices. And the Bonus Army, which happened earlier, which was World War One veterans claiming their one, they wanted their bonus a few years early. Uh, to help them get through the depression. And then their policy su suggestions are very much like what would be figured out in the New Deal. The idea of public works programs, getting off the gold standard, paper currency, putting money into circulation, and really pumping the economy. So Coxie's armies are America, one of America's first, I guess, Keynesians uh, or, or new New Deal thinkers. Now, it's interesting in the book, The Road, how much of the unemployed workers embrace the paramilitary logic of Coxie's army. They seem to almost embrace it. It's, I don't know if it was that they could play army for a while or they really thought that they were kind of being a revolutionary army. In another work, People of the Abyss, London actually mentions that he was in the army as a point you know, to talk to someone who was, also had a military history. But he meant Coxie's army. And I don't remember if the other guy realized this or not, but he kind of said, yeah, I was in the army. So it becomes a point of pride for them. And of course, in the bonus army, being part of the army was the whole idea, right? We sacrificed our lives and our time and we risked our lives to win the war. And now you owe us something and we need the money now, right? And it's almost a, an obligation of the nation to its soldiers. And then at the same time, you have revolutionary groups who imagine armies in the Iron Heel, Jack London will imagine a revolutionary army emerging among the people. But what we have here is a bottom-up order. We have an army not created from the top down, but an army created from the unemployed workers themselves. And this is how they arranged it. So if we want to have a model for a libertarian army, a bottom-up you know, army that can defend a revolution, which of course is always a problem if you're kind of listening, you know, for, for anarchists. For communists, it's easy. It's, you know, the party run, runs the army, right? But where do you, how can you have a libertarian army and still have discipline in organization? Well, Coxie's army perhaps is a model that one could look to. So this gets us to the final chapter of the book, Bulls. And this chapter, it ends the book, it focuses mostly on the police. That's who the bulls are. But his main argument is on the necessity of the hobo to American life. And here I'll kind of start to reach the conclusion here. Here's what he says. If the trap tramp were suddenly to pass away from the United States, widespread misery for the families would follow. The tramp enabled thousands of men to earn honest livings, educate their children, and bring them up God-fearing and industrious. I know. At one time, my father was a constable and hunted tramps for a living. The community paid him so much per head for all the tramps he could get, and also, I believe, he got mileage fees. Ways and means were always a pressing problem in our household, and the amount of meat on the table, the new pair of shoes, the daily outing, or the textbook for, America, for school were dependent on my father's luck in the chase. Well, I remember the suppressed eagerness and the suspense with which I waited to learn each morning what the results of the night last night's toil had been, how many tramps he had gathered in, and what the chances for convicting them. And so it was when later, as a tramp, I succeeded in eluding some predatory constable. I could not but feel sorry for the little boys and girls at home in the constable's home, for it seemed to me in a way that I was defrauding those little boys and girls of some of the good things of life. But it's all... But it's all in the game. The hobo defines society, and society's watchdogs make a living out of them. Some hobos like to be caught by the watchdogs, especially in wintertime. Of course, such hobos elect select communities where the jails are good, where no work is performed, and the food is substantial. 
on and on, right? So, yeah, this is on the surface about these people try to catch hobos and the police and the other forces in society that are trying to regulate and crack down on tramp life. But his point, again, is that this is integral to the American experience, right? So historians who now will argue this, it's not an uncommon argument among historians now, that the hobo life is essential to not only American culture, but, you know, economic life. And, you know, it's kind of an underground economy that has its own, it had its own dynamics. But London was making this argument back in 1907. So in an almost dialectical way, the hobo is of America and not part of it. London takes this idea rather directly, arguing that the rights of American liberty seem to end at the policeman's baton if one were a hobo, right? So it betrays the, I guess, the hypocrisy or the shallowness of American values, which I think is another argument that London makes. He's going to make it again in the Iron Heel, that basically all this talk of liberty and the rule of law and equality, it's all a facade if push comes to shove. I will say the book doesn't really end. It's it's just like these nine vignettes, and I believe this was originally published serially. So it's basically these nine articles and then just bound together. Um, London's still on the road when the book closes, so we never see him kind of get on his feet. That's not the story London wants to tell. It's not about a hobo who, who goes straight, right? It's It's more like Chaplin in a way. The hobo is always a hobo. A tramp's always a tramp. It's not a narrative structure, but rather we get these pictures of hobo life. Just like chapter three, he talks about hobo life as a series of vignettes or pictures, and that's how he approaches his story. It is a nice, effective book that's really fun to read. It's, you know, it doesn't get a lot of, you know, commentary. I don't, I don't see. I searched for The Road. There's, of course, a Wikipedia article, as there is for all of London's works. But, you know, all the pages that go in a little bit about the themes of The Road are talking about Cormac McCarthy, or you get a lot of stuff on On the Road by Kerouac. But this road seems to be the forgotten road book. Um, and I think that's unfortunate. It has a lot, I think, to teach us. It connects to a few of London's major themes. Um, and, you know, especially, I think, the importance of solidarity, the kind of the fragileness of American values and American identity. The importance of power. That's a big theme in this um, book as well. Um, yeah, approach this book as a series of stories from London's time on the road, and you'll not be disappointed. It's not a great work in the sense that it provides much explanation about hobos. London doesn't want to be a sociologist. He doesn't lecture, really, and, which is interesting because in the previous book that I looked at, at The People of the Abyss, he lectures a lot. And the Iron Heel is essentially one long lecture. You know, basically it's people preaching for most of the book. Now you have different voices, but it's it's one big long lecture about class struggle. This book is different in that it is just much more matter of fact. It's almost more Steinbeckian in its in its approach. London here really doesn't want to be a sociologist. As a hobo himself, he also lacks the rage he had in The People of the Abyss. Surely the hobos experienced horrors, and London talks about a few, but he, he's not observing these and horrified from the outside. He, he's just thinking back on what he observed. And, you know, he took these things on himself, and he's perhaps a bit more accepting of them because they happened to him and because they weren't, 
he's not coming at it as the empathetic observer. He's just, these are just things that happen to him, and he's not as critical and not as angry as you feel he is in the people of the best. And I think that's very interesting because often when people talk about the bad things that happen to them or these bad experiences, they come off you know very nasty and bitter about it. London's not. He's more bitter when he sees what's happening to other people. Um, like when he talks about, like really one of the angriest moments when he's talking about child labor, which he's not, it's really not what he's facing at the time. Okay, well, themes. You know, I forgot to do the themes for the people of the abyss. Um, I guess that's not a huge loss, but, you know, I'll try not to forget again. As always, I as, when I close a book, usually it's the last episode of a book, but in this one, I'm only doing one episode on the road, so it's going to be now i like to look at the themes of the book and the point of doing this is to kind of categorize all these american writers create an index of themes right so we'll see you know like this book deals with homelessness but so does perhaps steinbeck right so we can really start to sketch out an index and i know i'm going to have holes in these but i'm trying to create a, a lexicon of american writers and that's one of the goals of this podcast so if you have any themes you want to add, if you read this book, you know, please send them to me and I'll, you know, I'll sort of add them to my internal list of, of themes here. In this book, the biggest one, of course, is homelessness or, or the hobo life. And they're really the same. You know, people talk about the end of hobo life or that this hobo culture is declining or whatever, that it had its heyday in previous times. But homelessness is still very much real, and there's still millions of homeless people in America, in a, in a society that has no right to have any homeless at all. There's more than enough empty buildings to satisfy all the needs for shelter for all the, the country's homeless, yet we have a lot of it. So it's not gone away. Certainly, there's a bit of romanticization of homelessness here, um, and maybe that's easier to do with the hobos than just when you think about like a child and his mom living on the streets or something, right? I don't know. Maybe there's something about becoming an urban civilization that made homelessness more, a little less romantic. It's not the person on the rails or, or walking around anymore. It's, it's people wandering cities. They're still moving around and they're still surviving whichever way they can. But it's, it's got a different feel, I think. And maybe, maybe it's, Maybe it's worthwhile, what I'm trying to say is maybe it's worthwhile to connect the hobo life with more contemporary homelessness instead of saying the hobo life is gone and past. I don't know if that will gain us anything, but maybe it's something to, worth thinking about. We have some race here. Um, and I, I've been debating whether I want to talk about Jack London's racism or how much. I, I, no, I'm going to talk about his racism, but how much I want to talk about his racism. He certainly had this nativist streak to him and he, he thought he believed in kind of the yellow peril stuff. And, you know, I tried to talk about his social Darwinism when I looked at people at the abyss. Part of social Darwinism was, of course, the racism at the time and this, you know, this kind of competition for, for jobs, especially with immigration. We don't really see much of that here. Uh, London is basically sympathetic with the, mostly it's black people that he meets on the road. Uh, they're kind of in the background here, but we do see that they're kind of subject to particular brutality by the criminal justice system. So I guess that's the point I want to make here. Uh, Jack London is well aware that black people experience the criminal justice system with more severity than did white people. 
even though we see that most of the people in the jail were white and there are a lot of these vagrants and those are seem to be mostly white at least in london's experience american identity is another theme here and and it, and it comes off with this idea of entitlement this idea that uh somehow through my legacy being born in this country or being alive in this country i have a certain access to rights and a lot of the anger that is experienced in this book comes out of this feeling that i'm being taken my rights as an american are being taken away from me american identity though also comes in in the fact that you have such great diversity among the hobos if the hobos are integral to american life as jack london is arguing we must account for the fact that these hobos are a very diverse lot from all over the world, right? And I, I talked earlier in this episode about the names, right? And that just reflects this diversity. So that there's that's another side to American identity that's quite alive in this book. The criminal justice system is a theme here, and we've seen a lot of that in Steinbeck, of course, and we're going to see a lot of it in Jack London's work in general. But, uh, you know, here we actually have a, our, a memoir of someone in jail. It's not just a threat. It's not just the worry. And, it, you know, in Tortilla Flat, we saw talk about jail, but really not much, you know, people didn't spend much time in jail. We didn't get eyes so much into the jail. It was more just talked about as people going in and out, like a character would be in jail and then leave and come back into the community. Here we, we see the jail, and it's a really good description of it, and it's a nice chapter. It's gonna You could just take out that chapter and read it, and get a great snapshot of what a typical jail might look like in the late 19th century in America. But we also get the full criminal justice system, the enforcement, the bulls, the people who are trying to enforce vagrancy laws, the courts that just see the vagrants as a, a bother, not worthy of really enforcing their rights. So, uh, and then the jail itself. Capitalism is a theme, particularly, I think, in the chapters on Cox on Coxie's army where we see um, the failures of capitalism but it, it's in the backdrop of everything the social mobility the fact that people that were middle class are pushed into hobo life we see uh, capitalism in the fact that hobos were incredibly efficient with their money right they were they knew how to make money and hold on to it and have enough to survive that for all their their struggle they survived so they were almost we can almost look at them like petty businessmen, almost. Uh, not very successful ones, obviously, but they are, you know, making ends meet. And they, you know, they lie, they work, they pinch pennies, they do whatever they can to get by. I, you know, I don't want to really call them petty capitalists. I'm trying to find the right term to talk about it. Um, but... Again, I think it's an inverted form of it at any rate. And it's a part of it. It's maybe the underground economy. Maybe that's the, the phrase I'm looking for here. Um, but certainly the backdrop of all of this is grotesque income inequality and unfairness and the tendency of capitalist economies to dump millions of its workers onto the dole or onto the breadlines or into homelessness you know, because it doesn't need them anymore. And then that leads us to the next theme, which is social protests and social movements. Uh, again, the chapter on Coxie's army is the best example of it. The fact that these unemployed workers and these hobos were able to come together to be one of the most remembered and significant social protest movements of the later 19th century is telling something. Again, these are not atomized 
um, bothersome nuisances, right? They're, they are, they're holding in their hearts these values of American identity. They're holding in their minds dreams about what they want to be, right? They generally don't want to be hobos. As much as they're able to make a life out of it, they don't seem to really want that job. I mean, Jack London talks about this kind of wanderlust he has, but you know, he also talks throughout there about, you know, not wanting to go back to being a hobo, right? And as far as we know, he, I don't think he ever did. He's just a one-year thing. So, but that, this group of people who are seen as kind of these isolated figures wandering from town to town, riding the rails, are able to form a really significant social movement, get by thousands of people. They don't hold together. They fall apart pretty quickly. Kelly's army didn't make it to Washington. But they tried, and they're able to, able to form kind of a quasi-military structure. So I find that very fascinating here. Next, we have uh, solidarity in general. Um, what more can I say about this? It's, it seems to come up in every book. This is maybe a universal theme of American literature. Individualism certainly is, but I think solidarity is a, a, a variant of that in, in a lot of maybe non-intuitive ways. The hobos have a lot of solidarity. They cooperate. They work together. They like to travel together when they can, even if at the end of the day they don't stick together. They have certain rules. Um, they have their own market. They have their own, you know, ways of cooperating. So solidarity is a big part of the story. And then um, subcultures. Again, just the hobos as a subculture here. Um, subcultures are really fun to study. America has a lot of them. You know, and especially when we look at 20th century, where the story is this kind of hegemonic middle-class culture dominating everything, that's when subcultures start to thrive, right? But they've always been part of American life. And in a country as diverse as the United States, you're always going to have a lot of subcultures. And here's one, and it's part of what makes the American experience, American story, so fun to tell. I mean, I don't feel this when I read like English literature. Um, I don't read much of it, but the stuff I read, I don't get the feeling of, of subcultures, right? Of this great diversity. And then the final theme I'd like to mention here is just mobility, migrations and immigration and all that jazz. We, we talked a lot about it with the Steinbeck series. So you can go back and compare what London says about it to, to those works. We have both, we got migrant workers in both cases, although hobos, are unemployed migrant workers, but they share some things with George and Lenny, or they share some things with maybe the people going out to California, right? Uh, especially in the 1930s, you have this image of the hobo moving west. London's got it going east and wandering about here and there, but this image of the hobo going west, of course, comes from that 1930s generation. But generally, there's this migration and then immigration because so many of these hobos came from other parts of the world right one of the people he meets and spends a lot of time with is a swede right um, but they're coming from all over the world sharing in this american experience uh, of of homelessness so anyways that will do it all in all a really great book i had a lot of fun reading it and i, I think you should pick it up and, and take a look at it if you're interested in this theme of homelessness um, So that does it. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Please uh, share this or subscribe. You can go to iTunes or you can go to Podbean or you can just use your own podcast um, uh, app 
to subscribe, leave a review if you like what you're hearing, or just send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com and I'll try to get back to you. I'd love to hear what you think about these works. Have you read The Road lately? Uh, have you wanted to? Uh, what has Have you been homeless? Have, have you experiences that you'd like to share about that? Um, is anything that London says still ring true for homeless people today? Uh, let me know. Uh, anyways, a really great book worth reading. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you in 100 pages when we start to dive into Written Jack London's in The People the words of Dead Man's Songs Down through the years Many men have yearned for freedom Some found it only on the open road so many tears of blood have filled around.